All right, hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 256. I uh, hope everybody had a good time doing the test. Uh, from what I saw, most of the scores were really good for the test, so quite good. So congratulations, everybody. You're, you're keeping your learning up during the, uh, the quarantine. So as you probably recall, uh, the final exam will only cover material since the second test, so it's non-cumulative. So pretty much uh, the final exam is going to be everything we cover from this point on. And y'all are in luck, because we're going to be covering post-World War II America. That happens to be my specialty. Um, in history, you know, in any sort of field like this, you have some things that you study more than others, some that you're quite familiar with, and others of which you're an expert on. I can safely say that I'm an expert on post-war America. That is, that is my bread and butter. That's what I've written about. That's what I've been published in. This is, this is my forte, quite a bit. And you're in luck because we're going to be talking about the early Cold War today. Today's lecture is going to be on the early Cold War, uh, from 1945 to 1952-ish, ish. Actually, more realistically, we're going to be stopping right at 1949, but we'll get into 1952 when we get into the 50s. Uh, the Cold War is very important. It's probably the most important thing to happen in the U.S. since World War II. It pretty much shapes the entire U.S. to the modern day. Pretty much anything that happens in modern day of the United States has echoes of the Cold War in it. So it's only fitting that we are going to be talking about this quite a bit. So with that said, uh, let's get started. I will give y'all a second to go into Moodle and get yourselves the PowerPoint. So I'll give you a second. Okay, well... <clears throat> Uh, to understand the Cold War, you have to go back. You have to go back to Yalta in particular. Uh, remember, Yalta was the final conference of World War II, the last time that Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt ever met in person. And at, and at this conference, they are really trying to decide what is going to be the world like after the World War. By the time you get to Yalta, it's pretty obvious the Allies are going to win the war. Uh, Germany is only a matter of time. Japan's going to take a little bit longer, uh, but still, it, it, the writing is on the wall. And at this conference, you know, each of these individuals, you know, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, they each have their own desires. They each have their own goals for what they want there. And if you understand their goals, if you understand kind of the mindset behind them, you're going to understand what exactly is going to happen when we get into the early Cold War. So the first person I want you to think about is Stalin. Uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, he wants one word. The one word I would say that Stalin desires, and by proxy Russia, uh, security. Uh, he wants security for himself, he wants security for his regime, and he wants security for the Soviet Union in that order. Uh, by the end of the war, Stalin is 65 years old. He is no longer a young man. He is an older man. He is a very tired man. Uh, one of the best descriptions I've ever read of Stalin in this time period, he's the old battle-scarred tiger. Yeah, I just want you to imagine just this kind of old, grizzled... I mean, Stalin was known for having very pockmarked skin. Uh, his teeth were, you know, some of which were rotten and yellow because he didn't have really good dentistry back there. Uh, he's gone to the top by killing everybody. Uh, he didn't really have any rivals in Russia because he's long since killed them. Pretty much anybody who could challenge Stalin was long dead. So pretty much all he's surrounded by is yes-men. He's only surrounded by people who will just agree to his every word, mainly because they're terrified by him. 
Now, why does he want security for himself, his regime, and the Soviet Union in that order? Well, he believes that the Soviet Union deserves the most out of the war. He deserves they want they deserve the most plunder, if you will. I'll put plunder in quotation marks. They deserve the most stuff because of expenditures in blood. Remember, the Soviets lost way more people than anybody else in World War II. About 20 million soldiers, 5 million civilians. Uh, the U.S. lost a fraction of that. The, the ratio to one should remember is for every one U.S. troop that died, 62.5 Soviet troops died. You don't just lose that much of your population. You don't just lose 20 million people out of your pop, 25 million people out of your population without it weakening you. And Stalin feels that the Soviets are weak because of the war. He feels he, he thinks his regime is vulnerable. He thinks because they've done so much supporting and they've lost so many people, they're going to need support. They're going to need the help. That's Stalin's mindset there. He, he thinks that he deserves this because he's supporting everybody else. And he doesn't want to be involved in the next world war. Now, here's the thing with Stalin. The thing you need to realize about Stalin, we're going to get into this a little bit deeper when we get into the long telegram. But each understand that Stalin believes, like all good communists, quote-unquote good communists, Stalin's more of a Stalinist than a communist, he believes that capitalism inherently causes inequality, and eventually there's going to be a third world war between capitalist countries over resources. He is utterly convinced, call it like Nostradamus, Stalin-Damus, the Book of Revelation, whatever you want to call it, he is convinced that one day sooner or later, and more likely sooner than later, there's going to be a third world war. And it's going to be between capitalist countries over resources. And Stalin thinks it's in the best interest for all the other capitalist countries out there to buddy up with Stalin now to buddy up with the Soviet Union now so they don't die during the Third World War. He really thinks that there's going to be a war between all these other countries, the Soviets will be able to sit this one out because they've gone through so much. He really believes that's what's going to happen. He thinks this is going to happen. He's also heard murmurs about the atomic bomb. Uh, Stalin is a bit wary of it. You know, he, 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 you know he, he's more offended than anything else. That he's not, uh, he wasn't in the loop. He was not uh, directly informed about it. I mean, he had spies all over the Manhattan Project. He's more offended that he's not kept in the loop than he is of its power. Uh, the power of itself doesn't necessarily scare him. What does scare him is that the U.S. does this without letting the Russians know. So Stalin wants security. What does this look like? Well, four things. Number one, in order for Stalin to have security... He, need, he gets to keep all the territories he quote-unquote liberated from World War II. All right? Any place that he liberated, and you put liberated in quotation marks, during World War II, stuff he got from the Nazis, your Poland, your Eastern Bloc countries, he gets to keep them. He says he deserves this. This is, you know, they expended blood to get it, they should earn this. Now, why does he want this so bad? All right, this is something very key. Stalin believes he got it sucked into World War II because the Soviets invaded Germany. Remember, he was always worried of that. The only reason he didn't attack or get freaked out earlier is because Hitler made that promise to him, that, you know, which Hitler eventually broke. He believes that if there are countries that surround Russia as buffer states, 
your kind of buffer zone. So the Soviet Union is no long, it does not have any direct borders with any capitalist country. When World War III happens, the Soviets are going to be okay. All the other countries around the Soviet Union are going to go to hell, but you know what? The Soviet Union's are going to go. Soviet Union's going to go okay. And he thinks he deserves this because of how bad it was during World War II. The third thing he wants is he wants money. Uh, the Soviets desperately need money. They remember he goes scorched earth when the, the Nazis come in. He burns everything, destroys everything. He wants money from the Allies, not alone. He just wants straight-up money. He says it's the least thing the U.S. and the British could do is straight-up give the Soviets money, with no, no strings attached, because of how much they suffered during the war. The fourth thing that security looks like for Stalin, he gets the influence, and you can put influence in quotation marks again, any country he wants to become communist with no boundaries. Any place around the world that, that Stalin wants to influence to become communist, he believes that he can. Now, Stalin wants to do this because he believes that, you know, that's going to help about with the hypothetical World War III. Also, once FDR dies and Truman comes into power, Stalin's like, I can do anything I want with impunity. Um, you know, <laughs> Truman's this young pup, and, you know, he, Stalin thinks he can bully his way into getting whatever he wants. So that's Stalin. If you go over one more... Uh, FDR. FDR in this time, he's also tired. He's also dying. He doesn't know that he's dying. Uh, but he knows that he's not much longer for the presidency. He's talking about maybe retiring, uh, possibly resigning his office, even before Nixon does it. FDR is kind of flirting with the idea, maybe he'll resign the presidency once the war's over. Uh, he wants to retire to, uh, to Warm Springs. That's always been his goal. However, he's never trusted Stalin. Throughout the entirety of World War II, uh, FDR never trusted Stalin. Not, not for a second did FDR trust Stalin. And FDR believes if there's going to be a future war, it's going to be set up in the next couple of months. Remember, they're all remembering the lessons of World War I and the Treaty of Versailles. You know, the Treaty of Versailles pretty much set up the, the parameters of World War II right after World War I. And FDR is thinking, you know what, if we can get Stalin where we want him right now, there won't be a future war. All right? Remember, everybody here is terrified of World War III. Everybody here is terrified of World War III. Even though the U.S. did not suffer that greatly during World War II directly, it's still not a great war by these things. Now, what's the one thing that FDR wants to ensure this? Well, that one word is markets. Um, America wants as many foreign markets as possible. Remember, wartime production was way up. You know, the, the wartime production was like 40% of the U.S. economy. That's not going to be the case once the war's over. Remember, after World War I, there was an economic crash because of the lack of demand and marketing. So the FDR does not want another Great Depression. Uh, do, does World War I cause the Great Depression? No, but it doesn't help. Uh, you know, the, the uptick in manufacturing had so much more stuff, so much more supplies, that it didn't, it didn't help with purchasing stuff. But FDR sees an opening. Because remember, although the United States was not damaged by the war, it's pretty much the only place on Earth that wasn't. Uh, particularly Europe and Asia. Uh, specifically China. There's tons of money to be made in rebuilding. You know, everybody in these places, their farms, their factories were destroyed. They need food. They need basic supplies. And guess who could supply them? That's right. The good old U.S. of A. Could supply them. In particular, China. 
uh, China is viewed as a huge money-making opportunity because China has a billion people living in it. Um, to this day, China's got a lot of people living there. Uh, the U.S. population is about 300 million, I believe. China's 1.3 billion. So if you add a billion people to the U.S. population, China's still a little bit bigger. That's just crazy. So America believes they can sell to whoever they want, whenever they want. Now, I bet you're wondering, how do they do that? What leverage do they have on the Russians? You know, the Russians lost 20 million people, 20 million soldiers. The U.S. lost about 400,000 soldiers. H how do they think they have the ability to do this? Well, here's the thing. America does have some leverage on the Russians. In particular, they have supplied the Russians all throughout World War II. Yes, 20 million Soviets died, but the Soviet soldiers who did live were wearing American-made uniforms, shooting American-made ammunition, and eating American-made rations. So America could rightfully tell the Soviet Union, yes, you lost 20 million people, you could have lost 100 million people had it not been for the U.S. supplying you. In addition, the U.S. has the ultimate ace in the hole, the atomic bomb. FDR is hesitant to tell Stalin about it, uh, because he never trusted Stalin, that's why he never let Stalin know during its development. But he knew that this is the only thing that could outkill and outcrazy Stalin. You know, even Stalin, the battle-scarred tiger who, the homicidal, genocidal maniac, Joseph Stalin, even he has to be terrified of the atomic bomb, because he cannot match its destructive potential. You know, Stalin's not too concerned about it, but he has to respect it. FDR is mainly looking forward to getting through the end of the war, uh, possibly retiring, going to Georgia, Warm Springs, do his thing. He doesn't get the chance. Uh, the final person that who's at Yalta is Churchill. Churchill is representing Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain, in a word, wants to become like ancient Greece. Um, the war demonstrated that the British Empire was pretty much over. Uh, having foreign colonies like the British Empire used to have, you know, India and all these other territories across the world, it's going to become an issue. It's just way too expensive for the British to hold up. Plus, Britain needs to rebuild. Britain needs to rebuild. And so kind of what, what Churchill's kind of thinking is to become like ancient Greece was to Rome, uh, to the Americans. You know, Britain's the older empire, kind of like Greece, but then the new young person comes on the scene, like Rome, America, and it's going to be a supportive thing. Uh, Churchill is pretty much, uh, you know, Churchill understands that Britain's going to go down to being a B-tier country. You know, uh, we're, we're, it, Britain's time in the sun, being the most powerful country in the world, is over. World War II ended. All the overseas empires, all the overseas possessions are going away because it's just too expensive to keep all this. But Churchill is also terrified of a third world war, all right? Um, he thinks the only way that Britain is going to have a chance to live somewhat peacefully and be respectfully, you know, into retirement, becoming ancient Greece, is going to be through if there's not another world war. And in particular, Churchill is petrified about Poland. Um, he wants to ensure that Poland doesn't go completely communist, you know, it stays free, and also that they don't treat Stalin like they do Hitler. Um, basically appeasement. Uh, Churchill wants to make sure that the rest of the world doesn't get too complacent and giving Stalin all the stuff he wants, mainly because they don't want another world war. And that's kind of the status quo. 
Because it's amazing how quick this all devolves almost shortly thereafter the war. Um, within a year, Churchill would be out of office. He's voted out. Uh, Churchill's pretty much only a wartime prime minister. Um, FDR, likewise, he, he dies. And you have um, Truman in here. So even fairly early after the war, you start having some early moves. Some of these early moves. Go over one slide. Uh, even four days after the victory in Europe, uh, Churchill asked Truman, Truman, and Truman's still very clueless about everything that's going on, uh, what's going on in Europe? Um, Churchill comes to Missouri and actually gives a speech. Uh, it's the, the Iron Curtain speech, where basically Churchill says, hey, there is a quote-unquote Iron Curtain going up all along the Eastern Front. All these Eastern European countries, the Soviets are coming in, and we're not getting much communication about what's going on behind it. It's, it's clear that uh, Truman is also clueless. Remember, Truman's still a fairly new president at this time. Um, but both Churchill and Truman are, are clear that they both would prefer democratic governments in those territories. But that's not happening. Because all these territories that the Soviets are taking over, uh, that, sorry, that the Soviets are liberating, Stalin is not giving it back. Instead, he's putting in what's called puppet governments. Places like Albania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, Romania, Yugoslavia. Theoretically, all these places have their own governments, but they're all deferring to Moscow. They're puppet states. Theoretically, they make their own decisions, but in all honesty, Stalin is making all the decisions there. And to consolidate power, go over one more slide, uh, not one more slide, but one more point, number C. Uh, to consolidate power, to consolidate control, gain security, the Soviets come down very hard in these areas. You know, Albania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia. If you go over one slide, you'll see these countries there in red, the western... Actually, I just noticed, though, that is backwards. Uh, the eastern block is in red and the western block is in blue. Um, man, that, that's a bad map. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry about that, guys. Soviets are in red, everybody else is in blue. Uh, the Iron Curtain is that little whites thing, uh, you know, dividing West Germany, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and Austria, Austria and Hungary, and Yugoslavia, all that good stuff. It's kind of that line where you're not really hearing anything in there. Because what happens in these places is the Soviets come down hard. Uh, what do they do? Well, they start doing some things that, historically speaking, don't end well. Uh, for instance, they outlaw all parties except the Communist Party. That, that's one way to ensure you get all your elections. Uh, then they bring in secret police. Remember, secret police, one of those terms which is not great. Uh, not only that, they take control of the mass media. Uh, the Soviets take control over the media. They make sure that nobody can criticize the Soviet government. There's not free speech. In addition, they underlaw or under sorry, they undermine or outlaw the Catholic Church. Uh, the Church was speaking out against communism. Remember, theoretically, communism is atheist. It's more in theory than in practice, but still, a lot of the Roman Catholic Church was speaking out against communism. Uh, the Russians start trying to undermine them. Uh, they also bring in a lot of ethnic cleansing. That's another one of those phrases which never ends well, ethnic cleansing. Uh, about 12 million Germans, Poles, and Hungarians are forcibly removed from their homes in Eastern Europe or sent to Western uh, Europe or uh, prisons. Uh, it's not good. It's not good. Uh, I'm not saying they die, but there's forced relocations. Uh, anybody who speaks out against the Russians is imprisoned or worse. And this is happening very quickly 
after the war. And Stalin himself even admits that they can't have free elections. You know, whenever he's pressed about why don't you have free elections, why aren't there, you know, straight-up democratic elections in these, in these countries, Stalin says, quote, um, you know, they'll probably elect uh, anti-Soviet governments. Which is accurate, because the Soviets are the one being brutal. But Stalin says if they are allowed to elect who they want, they're going to vote us out, and that would undermine Stalin's security. And remember, Stalin wants security over everything else. Now, the U.S. wants to keep Stalin honest. They want to make sure Stalin keeps his word. Uh, there is talks of using nukes on Berlin to scare the Russians, um, but they don't buy into it mainly because Stalin already knows and the Soviets are already developing their own atomic bombs. Instead, Truman does something that is unexpected for Stalin. He decides he's going to talk tough. Remember Truman? He's kind of a... He's our poorest president. He's kind of a nowhere guy. You know, he'd only been vice president for a cup of coffee, and now he's president of the United States. He's this, you know, yokel from Nowheresville, Missouri. And Truman decides to talk tough. He informs the Soviet foreign minister that uh, unless Stalin allows free elections in Poland, which was agreed to in Yalta, uh, the Soviets not going to keep up, the U.S. would not keep up their end of the bargain. So he's basically telling, yo, you know, all your expenditures in blood doesn't matter. Stalin, unless you do what you say you're going to do, we're not going to do it. Now, this shocks the Soviet foreign minister. Um, Soviet foreign minister is surprised. The Soviet foreign minister even says, quote, I've never been talked to, to all like that in all my life. You know, the, just this, the sheer bluntness of Truman is just astounding, the Soviet foreign minister. And Truman responds, Heifer, if you kept your promises... You won't get talked to like that. Um, he didn't actually say heifer. I wish he did. That'd be hilarious. But he says pretty much the rest of that. He's like, look, if y'all keep your promises, I'm not going to talk to you like that. This infuriates Stalin. Stalin is... Stalin was under the impression the U.S. was going to do pretty much whatever it wanted. Um, they were under the impression that the, you know, if the Soviets asked for something, the U.S. would comply. Because remember... The Soviets fought World War II by themselves for two and a half years, lost 20 million people. Stalin feels he's owed that. Likewise, he thought he could bully Truman. He didn't even think he had to bully Truman in person. So Stalin's like, you know what, maybe I need to meet Truman in person. You know, once get me in front of Truman, I'll, 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 I'll be mean to him, I'll bully him, I'll get whatever I want. So they do finally meet in July of 1945 at the Potsdam Conference. Uh, more agreements are made. Uh, you know, about free elections and stuff like that. As soon as Stalin gets to Moscow, he abandons every single one of them. Basically, Stalin had no purpose of, of keeping it in, in place. Uh, Truman's not surprised about it. He's a little myth, though. It's kind of funny. He writes, to his le uh, writes a letter to his mother saying of Stalin after Stalin broke all of his promises, you know, I even like the little son of a bitch, and he, and he got rid of me. Ah. So <laughs> that's Truman doing his thing. Uh, go over some more. Now we're getting to containment, all right? And containment is something you definitely need to know about as we get into more of the Cold War. So in February 1946, barely six months after the war is over, Stalin has a declaration. Stalin declares the supremacy of communism, which is not unsurprising. You know, Stalin's a communist. He would say that communism is the best. But Stalin also says that peace is impossible under, quote, the present capitalist development of the world economy. So pretty much Stalin is already talking war. 
And by 1947, as we get into 47, relations with the, with the Soviets are colder than cold. And this really confuses the U.S. State Department. The American government is really confused about what is going on here. Why are the Soviets so concerned about warmongering? Why, why can't Stalin just appreciate the peace? Why does Stalin, you know, barely six months after the war is over, already talking about another war? And so the U.S. the U.S. decides to they need somebody to figure this out for them, and so they decide to get their best expert on the Soviet Union, a guy by the name of George Keenan. Uh, you'll see his name right there, George Keenan. In fact, go over one, you'll see his picture. There he is, George Keenan, a middle aged, probably late middle aged guy. Um, he is the U.S.'s best expert on the Soviet Union. Uh, Keenan is currently working at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. That's a pretty good place for you to be if you're the um, best expert on the Soviet Union, uh, be in the Soviet Union. Um, it's not too surprising for people who work at the embassy to do these type of reports. Um, I'm not saying everybody who works at an embassy is a spy, but you better believe everybody who works at an embassy is writing reports at home and... Yeah, that's, that's not too surprising. So Keenan decides, you know what, he, you know, th they ask him, they, they ask Keenan, hey, what is up with the Soviet Union? What's up with Stalin? What is going on here? Why are they acting so jerkish? And Keenan responds with what's known as the long telegram. Uh, the long telegram, it's about 5,000 words long, which is, uh, Impressive for a telegram. Most telegrams are like a tweet in length. So imagine like the long tweet thread. Uh, not a 5,000 tweeter, you know. Um, you know, let's say it's like several hundred tweets long. A very hundred, you know, the 300 tweet long uh, tweet thread. Basically is what Keenan responds to. A very long telegram. It's 5,000 words. And basically, he explains the Soviet worldview. And this document is very important. I'm not going to have you read it. But if you ever get, you know, if you have some, if you have a chance to read it during the quarantine, um, go for it. It's, it's an interesting telegram because it pretty much forms the basis of U.S. foreign policy throughout the Cold War. You see, as Keenan explains, the Soviets view the world as a fundamental conflict between communism and capitalism. This goes back all the way to Marx. If you read Karl Marx. He, you know, one of his first things he says is that it's been a, you know, history is a history of conflict between the, uh, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, you know, the haves and the have-nots. All of history has been framed in this conflict. And because they believe conflict is fundamental, and that is the natural state of things, the Soviets are able to justify their amoral and contradictory actions because of this conflict. To the Soviets, to communists, peace is an illusion. Peace is a temporary thing. Because, as he, as Keenan explains, the Soviets, in particular the Soviet leadership, and somebody like Stalin, legitimately cannot imagine a peaceful coexistence with the United States. Not just that, the only reason that Stalin has been able to maintain power, the only reason that Stalin was able to get power and maintain power is because there has to be the perception of a bigger boogeyman. Stalin is, as Keenan writes, is fanatically, uh, Keenan even, even uses the word fanatically, 
devoted to the perception of perpetual tension and conflict. That's how Stalin is able to get power. He, Stalin is able to get power because he wants the Soviet people to believe that there's always conflict going on. And even though Stalin is brutal, he's better than the alternative. He's better than Trotsky, he's better than Hitler, and now he's better than the United States. Stalin cannot exist without a bigger bad that he is the lesser of two evils of. You see, FDR had hoped that his personal relationship with Stalin would keep them in line. But Stalin needs external enemies. Because if Stalin doesn't have a totalitarian... Sorry, if Stalin doesn't have an external enemy, he has no way to justify his totalitarianism. You know, Stalin cannot justify all these horrible things he does unless there's somebody worse out there. That's why he does all these things in the Eastern Bloc countries. So how do you deal with this? Because Keenan says the moment the Soviets... Sorry, the moment the United States gets threatening, the moment the United States gets warlike with the Soviets, the Soviets have won. How do you win a war that you lose the moment you enter into? Remember, the Stalin is saying all sorts of horrible, unjustified thing about the United States, saying they're the, the worst thing ever, they're, they're just a bunch of capitalist jerkwads that are, they hear nothing for anything. But the moment the U.S. says anything that's anything but peaceful, you've justified everything Stalin has ever said about them. I, I know I'm dwelling upon this. This is not too historical. But if you understand this, you will understand pretty much the rest of the class when it comes to the Cold War. So how do you fight this type of war? How do you deal, how do you fight an ideological war? You know, do you use a nuclear bomb? But if you, lose, if, you lose, if you use a nuclear bomb, everything bad about you has been justified. Everything horrible Stalin's ever said about you has been justified. Remember, the Soviets want the U.S. to go to war with them. They want the U.S. to become more warlike because even with the sacrifices, Stalin will be able to justify everything horrible he's done. So to stop this spread, to defeat this ideological foe, Keenan suggests containment. Know that word. Containment. It's not directly going against something. It's preventing something from spreading. Instead of going to war directly with the Soviets, Keenan suggests that the U.S. should economically develop capitalist countries. Because that's going to undermine the Soviet regime better than any, any war could. He said, ultimately, the Soviet Union would be financially unsustainable. You know, if you resist communism without going to war, the Soviet Union would become unsustainable, and eventually they're either going to mellow out or they're going to break up. I, I need to understand. Keenan is saying financially support all these other countries because he believes the Soviet economy is unsustainable. Unless there's a bigger threat out there, the Soviets just can't keep the economy going. And if the U.S. can pretty much bankrupt the, the, bankrupt the Soviets without ever going to war, the Soviet Union's either going to have to mellow out or break up. And, and I'll give this to Keenan. I'll give this to Keenan. He's absolutely right. Uh, spoiler alert, that's pretty much how the Cold War ends. It ends with the Soviet Union going bankrupt. That's pretty much exactly how it ends. Containment becomes the U.S.'s first and honestly only strategy throughout the Cold War. 
For the next 40 some odd years, this is the backbone of U.S. policy, period, in the discussion when it comes to the Cold War. Containment, stopping the spread. Now, it's going to have different names under different presidents. When we get to Nixon, we'll talk about detente. When we talk about the moral stuff of Reagan, when we get into Reagan, pretty much all U.S. presidents, are they believe that they need to stop the Soviets from spreading without going directly to war with the Soviets. But how do you do that on a practical level? Well, the U.S. gets its first chance in Greece. In February of 47, there is a civil war brewing in Greece between a monarchy, which has been backed by the British, uh, the Greeks have had a monarchy for a while, and a new communist insurgency, which has been supported by the Soviets. Now remember, the British are going broke. The British, uh, they need money to rebuild their own countries, their, their home country. And so Britain quietly tells America, hey, uh, we don't really have the money or the resources to keep uh, Greece afloat. We're going to pull out. you got about five weeks after we pull out before the communists take, out, take over. Truman doesn't want this. Truman wants the Greek people to stay free. And so Truman's like, you know what? Maybe we need to give the Greeks money. We need to give the Greeks money. The thing is, though... When it comes to America, anything having to do with money can't be just the president. It has to go through Congress. And so Truman goes to Congress, and he's like, Congress, I need this money. Now, here's the thing. We're talking about a lot of money just after the war. You know, people are okay spending money during the war, but after the war, they don't, they don't understand what is the deal with all this foreign aid. And so the Congress people tell Truman straight up, look, we have to answer to our constituents. You know, the, most of the American public is probably not going to be too keen on giving the Greek people all this money. In order for them to do it, you got to scare the hell out of them. Truman's okay with this. Truman actually says, you know what, I'm tired of babying the Russians. He actually uses the term babying the Russians. And he's ready to give a speech. So if you go over to more, in March of 1947, Truman gives a speech in which he asks Congress for $400 million in aid for Greece and Turkey to resist the communists. Turkey's involved in this too. Uh, Greece and Turkey are separate countries. Um, for instance, if you ask my brother-in-law, who's Greek, hey, are you the same thing as the Turks? He will say all sorts of bad things because, yeah, Greeks and Turks don't like each other very much even though they're right next to each other. And There's a lot of cultural overlap there. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're different countries. So in this speech, okay, in the speech... Truman exaggerates the threat of the communist. He says if Greece fell, pretty much all of Europe is going to start to fall. And he uses a term like dominoes. This becomes known as domino theory. All right? Domino theory is the idea that if one country goes communist, more countries go communist. Uh, Keenan kind of, kind of doesn't agree with this. We'll get to that in a second. But this becomes, his speech becomes known as the Truman Doctrine. And you need to know the Truman Doctrine. All right, The Truman Doctrine basically stated states that the U.S. would financially support anybody trying to resist communism no matter the cost. I'll repeat that. The Truman Doctrine basically says the U.S. will financially support anybody resisting communism no matter the cost. This sets the language of the Cold War for the next 40 years. 
pretty much for the next 40 years, the U.S. is going to be financially supporting all sorts of regimes, then some insurgencies, just so they don't become communist. This does make Keenan cringe. Uh, cringe wants strategic containment. He's not saying the entire world needs to be contained. Uh, Keenan's thinking certain places, places like Poland, France, uh, major countries. But Truman is now saying, we're going to support you wherever you are. Anywhere you want, we will support you. If you're, not, if you're feeling a little communist, we will help you out. Uh, Keenan's not alone in criticizing this. Uh, there's a lot of critics that state that doing this is going to get involved, get America involved in a lot of different foreign wars, and they're going to be supporting uh, otherwise really cruddy dictators just because they're anti-communist. Now, to be fair to their critics, that's exactly what happens to the U.S. Uh, we get involved in Korea and Vietnam uh, because they're fighting against the communists. Uh, we didn't really have any business being there, but we are. Likewise, the U.S. supports a lot of really bad dictators just because they're anti-communist. Um, also, you get to the point where certain countries might be playing the U.S. and the Soviets off of each other for resources. That happens all the time. Um, it's like Christmas between two divorced parents who hate each other, and you're like, hey, mom, dad bought, dad bought me a Nintendo Switch, and she buys you a flat-screen TV, so he buys you a Ferrari. That's pretty much what's happening in some of these countries, like... Hey, America, I'm feeling a little communist. Cough, cough, going to have some airplanes. So the U.S. gives them airplanes. Then the Soviets give them tanks, all sorts of stuff. Uh, they're not wrong about that. Still, uh, Truman's scare tactics work. Uh, Congress approves the request, and Greece doesn't go communist. So it's a success. This seems to be the beginning of what's going to be a much longer uh, strategy for the Cold War throughout the United States and pretty much throughout the war, the Cold War. So if you go over a few more, uh, we got to talk about Western Europe for a second. Go over one more, the Marshall Plan. Greece is a success, but the rest of Europe is a disaster, particularly the interior of Europe. Uh, remember, like that's where the war was fought. There were lots of bombs dropped. Uh, unemployment is high. People are starving. Uh, socialist and communist parties are getting popular in many European nations just because of how bad the uh, suffering was and how slow the rebuilding was going. Uh, for instance, Italy, Belgium, and France are looking like they might go communist through popular elections. This is not the communists taking over like violently, like happened in the Soviet Union. This is people just straight up electing communists. This scares the crippity crap out of America, particularly with a place like France. You know, France was our ally during World War II. Yeah, they were occupied by the Nazis most of the time, but still it's France. Um, you know, so maybe we should do something about that. Also, there are a lot of cities in France that got bombed by the Allies. Caen's uh, probably a good one. Um, C-A-E-N. It's right next to Bayou in Normandy, France. It gets the living, you know what, bombed out of it. Uh, not by the Germans, but by the Allies. And the French are okay with it because they understand it gets the Nazis out. But you still have to rebuild, and it's got to be kind of a mind fudge, if you will, if you're trying to rebuild, uh, you know, your city that got bombed by your allies, quote-unquote. But the suffering is so bad that a lot of these countries are looking to elect communist or socialist leaders 
This does not make America very happy because, remember, these communist and socialist countries may not be inclined for them to be able to sell them to. So in May of 47, George Marshall, go over one more. There he is. Uh, he's the one not, he's the one wearing a regular suit, not wearing academic robes. Uh, he is a secretary of state. He gives a speech at Harvard. He gives the commencement address where pretty much he says, remember, that, remember when we gave money to, to Greece? We should do that to all of Europe. Now, this is met with a lot of criticism. Um, it, it's basically, there's a lot of criticism that the U.S. is trying to make a United States of Europe. Uh, also, it's for, far, far too much. There's a lot of criticism that the U.S. is just doing too much in Europe. Uh, or that it's a new deal for Europe. Uh, the idea that, you know, Americans are like, why are we spending all this money on Europe? You know, the U.S. would like some money, too. We shouldn't necessarily have to spend. Um, also, the Europeans should should help themselves. You know, the, the, the most long-lasting, best improvements are going to come internally. Now, this criticism goes away almost immediately once Czechoslovakia goes from democratic to communist. Uh, there's a lot of fear that if Czechoslovakia goes over communist, oh, snap, countries might go communist if we don't help them out. That pretty much gets everybody on board with the plan. Um, basically, the details of the plan, um, send a bunch of money to Europe. That's pretty much it. Uh, from 1948 to 1951, about $13 billion with a B dollars in aid are given to European countries. Uh, that's in 1948 money. That's several, billion, several hundred billion dollars in today money. Remember, they only gave the, um, the Greeks uh, $400 million. They're giving the rest of Europe $13 billion. Now, the other detail of the plan is pretty much this money is available to whoever wants it. If a country wants the money, all they have to do is ask. Now, theoretically, the Soviets could participate, or those Eastern Bloc countries could theoretically participate in this. Uh, theoretically speaking, you know, any country that wanted it could ask for the money and get it. Even the Soviets. Remember, that's what the Soviets want, is they just want the U.S. to give them money. And this is the U.S. just pretty much giving countries money. Uh, we're going to get to what they do with that money in just a second. So pretty much the Soviets could do it. However, the Soviets forbid it. Well, uh, the Soviets forbid their own people and also the countries they take over from taking this money. Uh, Stalin has his own plans. They're the five-year plans, Stalin calls them. It's pretty much a five-year everybody-dies plan. Um... It's a huge success. Um, the U.S. looks really good in this. Uh, it's credited as the most successful peacetime diplomatic action in U.S. history. If you go over a few more, you will see some of the propaganda from this. Um, I want you to look at that picture with all those bags of grain real quick. Because that's how they're able to get a lot of the, these American farmers on board with this. Remember, they're still dealing with wartime production. Uh, the U.S. military doesn't need all their grain and stuff for the soldiers. But Europe might need it. So although they're giving $13 billion to Europe, uh, the thing is, if Europe is going to buy their necessities, food, pig iron, steel, uh, road equipment, factory, you know, just junk people need, the only people making it is the U.S. So although the U.S. is giving $13 billion to, to, to Europe, the U.S. is getting it pretty much back. U.S. farmers and stuff are getting it back. Uh, U.S. manufacturing is getting it back. That's why a lot of America is okay with it. But then we get into the fly of the ointment. Uh, Germany. Germany is kind of the fly of the armament. 
Uh, because the plan is very successful in Western Europe, Germany is a sticking point, because Stalin correctly sees this plan as a way to weaken Soviet un uh, influence. Now, as you recall, Germany had been divided. If you look uh, one more, you will see how Germany got divided. Uh, because Germany was so central, uh, they divided it four ways. Uh, the Britain has what's the area in green. Uh, France has the Rhineland, which is the land they got after World War I, in blue. Uh, America's got the, east, the kind of the more industrial central south section. And finally, uh, Russia has eastern Germany with Berlin. Now, Berlin, as you can see, because it's so important, it too got split four ways. Now, Germany suffered pretty bad during the war. It needs help with basic necessities. And fairly early on, the uh, France and England are not really interested in financially supporting anything other than their home countries. Remember, they, they just spent so much on getting rid of everything else. So fairly early on, uh, the British, French, and American zones combine into one area called West Germany. Uh, it has its own government, has its own currency. Now, this also includes West Berlin, the, you know, the non-red section of Berlin. And in time, uh, West Germany becomes very successful. Very successful. Now, this infuriates Stalin. Uh, Stalin wanted a weak Germany uh, because a strong German state would undermine Soviet security. That's security, once again, that's all Stalin's interested in. And... Uh, Initially, Stalin thought, hey, you know, this is going to be communist utopia, even though he's not fond of having uh, capitalist countries next to his borders. He figured that, uh, you know, East Germany would become like a worker's paradise. It becomes so successful that they'd have people flocking from West Germany to come over. However, there's a couple of very bad early famines in East Germany, but West Germany is doing great. Now, the thing is... West Germany is being West Berlin is being supplied by West Germany. There's roads and stuff that go to it. And as it's getting more and more successful, Stalin decides, you know what? I'm going to blockade West Berlin. He prevents all rail and road traffic from coming into Berlin to supply it. Now Berlin is seen as vital for the Americans. You know, this is the capital of Germany. This is containment doctrine. This is one of those zones where Keenan says, you know, you can't give up this territory. Because if the, the belief was if the Americans retreated from West Berlin, all of East Germany would go communist, and if all Berlin is communist, pretty much all of Germany would be communist. Um, where Berlin goes, the thinking was, so does Germany. But to stay in Berlin was to risk war with the Russians. But to retreat would be humiliating. So Truman, Mr. Buck stops here. Oh yeah, that's another thing about Truman. He's called the Buck. Um, he had a sign on his desk saying the Buck stops here. He's often called Mr. Buck stops here. Uh, he decides, you know what? We're going to stay in Berlin. Period. And although the U.S. is unable to get rail or road uh, supplies to Russia, there's nothing. Uh, sorry, to Berlin, there's nothing they can do about the air. This begins what's known as the Berlin Airlift. Go over one more. You will see one of these airplanes coming down. Pretty much what what Roosevelt, not Roosevelt, what Truman does is he calls up former military pilots, the former guys who were dropping bombs on Berlin. In fact, with some of the same planes, to fly over Berlin and drop supplies. 
Now, here's the thing. They could not have their guns on, because if you have warplanes flying over Berlin, the Russians could think, hey, this is an act of war. They could shoot them down, justify everything horrible the Russians ever said about it. So the Americans have to be up front with this idea they are going to be going with no weapons over Berlin and dropping supplies. And they do it. This goes on for 11 months, where America supplies West Berlin, and they become like folk heroes. If you go over one more, you'll see all these toys. Uh, they don't just drop food. They, they realize pretty early on this is a PR vac uh, va factor as well. Uh, they start dropping candy for the children, start dropping toys. Uh, one that always kind of pulls at my heartstrings a little bit is the fact that, um, if you don't know, the symbol of Berlin is the bear. Um, bear in Berlin, it's just kind of their symbol. Um, Berlin is the bear. That's, that's, their, that's their, their city symbol. We don't really have anything like that in America, I guess. I guess Apple for the Big Apple of New York, but, uh, well, yeah, maybe maybe some sports teams. I don't know. But um, most, like, pretty much all Berlin sports teams have the bear as part of their mascot or their emblem. And so the U.S. has teddy bears, and the U.S. is literally dropping teddy bears out of the same bombers that used to drop bombs on Berlin factories just a year or two before. Now, I just want you to imagine for a second what this is like for somebody living in Berlin. For almost a year, you know, from, from, uh, from June 48 to May 1949, you're seeing the same bombers, which used to cause fear, now be the thing that causes hope. You know, to see bombers come down, dropping toys, candy, food, teddy bears, for, for you. And this is the same people that the Soviets are telling you know they're bad. You know, this is the Soviets have barbed wire. The Soviets were the one that started the blockade of Berlin because of how evil and scary the Americans are. And yet the evil, scary Americans are dropping teddy bears. This is psychological warfare. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, even to this day, um, in fact, some of my, some of my, some of you who have military experience, I know some of my military friends talk about this. Uh, you know, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a lot of things they do for like community relations. You know, you're not just fighting folks in foreign countries. You're trying to get the the people over to your side by doing things like building playgrounds or soccer fields or whatever. Is there a way to just you know earn goodwill? Uh, the Soviets do finally break the blockade. They do finally let go of the blockade uh, in '49, mainly because there's a very bad famine, and even the Russians are desperate for that West Berlin food. Uh, the airlift is the first real victory. In the Cold War, um, it's psychological. You know, we made the Russians retreat. We made the Russians change their mind without showing force. It shows that, you know what, maybe we can do something about this. I'll go over one more slide. Uh, there are some other changes which happen in this time period. Um, for instance, uh, they have to reorganize the military. Um, instead of demilitarizing, which means to completely get rid of the military, the military uh, Truman actually remilitarizes. He kind of like reorganizes a little bit. Uh, Truman brings in a permanent military. That is something which the U.S. has not had in, throughout its history. The idea of a large standing army is something which has been kind of uh, through most of U.S. history. However, Truman says the Cold War is so important, we need to do this. Uh, he also divides the Department of Defense into three branches. You might know this. The three branches of the military which come about are the Army, Navy, and Air Force. Um, air, land, and sea, best way to remember it. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, what about the Marines? The Marines are actually part of the Navy. 
Uh, he also makes the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, it had been around in a proto-form since World War II. Um, the OSS is uh, basically, there had been kind of spy services, intelligence agencies. Uh, the CIA kind of puts them all together, Central Intelligence. Another thing that happens is there's a new nation, um, Israel. Uh, after the Holocaust, there had been some calls for a proper Jewish uh, homeland. The idea that the Jews had their own state, if they had their own country where they weren't the minority, they could prevent uh, another Holocaust from happening. And this kind of happens because of the Cold uh, because of not Cold War, woo, decolonization, um, deimperialism. Decolonization is what, why, why it causes. Because uh, Britain had ruled the Middle East for quite a while, uh, th this region of Palestine, which is you know, Jerusalem and stuff. Uh, pretty much Britain's like, hey, we're pulling out, hey, uh, Zionist Jews, do y'all want to have this as your own country? To which the Palestinians who live there are like, wait, what now? Can we get our own country? But they don't. This kind of causes the kerfuffle that's still going on in the Middle East to this day. Uh, Jews, that's their ancestral homeland, but they'd been out. There had been a Jewish state for like 2,000 years. Like, even when Jesus was around in that area, it wasn't ruled by the Jews. It was ruled by the Romans. And, you know, after the Romans, it's uh, know, all sorts of different people. But just understand, there's not been a Jewish homeland for 2,000 years. And the Palestinians, you know, they, they kind of wanted their own land. So that's a kerfuffle. Uh, the U.S. supports this nation very strongly. Uh, this does cause some issues with some of the other Arab nations around there. Uh, it should also be mentioned that the U.S. supports Israel strongly militarily in this time period. Uh, Israel's also fairly quick to get nuclear weapons, almost certainly because the U.S. gives it to them. Uh, we'll get into that later when we talk about Iran, but anyway. Uh, probably the most important change, if you move on, is NATO. Uh, NATO comes into play. It's uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, it's it's uh, it states that all nations are going to come together to resist Russia. It's uh, it's the first real peace on alliance that the U.S. has gotten into. The idea being, hey, Western Europe, if Russia ever attacks you, we'll treat that as attack on all. Uh, NATO says that attack on one member of NATO is considered an attack on all members of NATO. It's never actually been called to this point. Um, NATO has not actually been called into this. Um, NATO is still around to this day. We'll get into kind of the issues of it later. Uh, there are modern day issues going on with that, but we're running out of time, so let's keep going. Uh, also in 48, there is an election. Uh, Thomas Dewey runs again. Uh, Truman is very unpopular. Truman is insanely unpopular. He's about to get less popular in 1949. But in 48, it's looking like Truman is probably going to lose the election. Uh, if you go over, you will see he doesn't win the election, even though that headline is wrong. That's a fairly famous picture. Uh, there's Harry Truman holding up Dewey defeats Truman. Uh, basically... <laughs> The GOP does pretty well in the State House. When it comes to the White House, Truman squeaks out a victory. Uh, basically, this newspaper printed it too early. Uh, Truman likes that. I like this one better. It's one from The Onion. The other guy defeats what's his face. Anywho. So, before we get into the bad year of 1949, and let's do a quick little status update. Uh, the U.S. appears to be winning the Cold War. 
Uh, Marshall Plan is working. It's doing great. Uh, the Greek Civil War, they beat the communists, doing good. Berlin Airlift, looking good. NATO offers protection against more aggression. Likewise, we have the atomic bomb. We have the ultimate ace in the hole. So everything seems to be going pretty good for the United States. Then two things happened in 1949, which totally upend everything. The first is a Chinese revolution. Uh, China becomes communist in 1949. Uh, there had been a civil war before in China, before the World War II, both sides kind of laid off because of World War II. But in 49, um, basically China goes communist. Despite the U.S. being Chinese, China's major ally in World War II, remember China's one of the five super cool best friend countries in World War II. They're one of the five uh, members of permanent members of the U.N. Security Council because that's the five super cool best friend countries in World War II. Uh, China in this time period was led by Chiang Kai-shek. There he is, right there. He was the leader of the Chinese Nationalist. He was the U.S.'s major ally. This is, you know, the U.S. major ally. He was overthrown, well, forced to flee by Mao Zedong. There's Mao Zedong right there. Uh, Chairman Mao, better known as Chairman Mao, he is the head of the Chinese Communist Party. He brings in what's known as a Great Leap Forward, basically um, making China into a communist country. Um, this is conflicting for the U.S. because America backs the nationalists led by Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, they flee from China and they go to Taiwan. Uh, it's island of Formosa, it's off the coast of China. Basically, they make a new country, they call it Taiwan. And the U.S. recognizes it almost instantly as the legitimate China. This causes a big rift between the U.S. and China, which isn't resolved until Nixon in about 20 years. Uh, this is a kerfuffle. This is definitely a kerfuffle when it comes to it. Um, this is really seen as unforgivable against Truman, uh, mainly by the Republicans, for two reasons. Number one, uh, China was our ally during World War II. They were a major ally, and one of our major allies has just gone communist. Also, China's got a billion people in it. That's a billion potential consumers that are gone. Uh, that's, that's one thing Republicans never forgive Truman for. The other major fear is now that China has the... China is communist. Russia is communist. China has the highest population of any country on Earth. And also, in case you don't notice... Uh, China and Russia border each other. And so there's a fear that, oh my gosh, they're going to make this super huge, giant communist country. Likewise, Russia can get more supplies than they ever need from, uh, from China. Because, you know, they, they, they're, they're afraid that there's going to be one big super communist country. Um, that never happens. Spoiler alert. Mainly because Russia and China never get along, even though they're both communist countries. If that wasn't bad enough, oh yeah, um, if you go over one more, you'll see one of my favorite um, um, memes of Mao. There's Mao, there's LMAO. Eh, all right, Mao, laughing Mao. Okay, fine, I'm a nerd. Uh, the other bad thing that happens in 49, the USSR announces they have the atomic bomb. Uh, this is not surprising. Stalin had spies from the get-go. Um, he, he pretty much said he, he does indeed want a bomb. Not because he wants to use it, but he wants to make sure that America doesn't have it by themselves. He thinks America's going to turn into a bully. Uh, this, the U.S. did expect Russia to get the bomb eventually. They didn't expect it to be so soon. 
Uh, most U.S. projections were about 10 years or so. So like in 1959, 60 is when the Russians were going to get the bomb. Nobody expected 1949. This pretty much wipes out the U.S. advantage they have. Uh, the U.S. government adopts a new strategy in 49. Basically, um, there's a paper called NSC-68. It basically says America needs to militarize past the point of actually needing it. It needs to scare the USSR past any confrontation. Uh, we need to have so much military buildup. Reagan's going to get into this later, that there's no practical way of using it. We need to keep building nuclear bombs, build bigger bombs, build fancier bombs, build H-bombs. Uh, build it so big that the USSR would have to be crazy to try to attack us. Uh, let's talk about the Cold War at home. This is going to be the last thing we talk about. I know this has been kind of a long one, but, eh, we need to talk about this for a while. Um, Cold War at home, a uh, lot of, lots of fear. Uh, there is the Federal Loyalty Program, or FELP, basically... Uh, the fear is that the Soviets had to have gotten the nuclear secrets from somewhere. Uh, maybe it's somewhere in the federal government. Uh, there is a lot of screening of people for disloyalty. Uh, there's a lot of fear of spies throughout the entire country. Uh, there's, they're afraid that people are spying for the Soviets. Lots of hysteria. Uh, one you probably have never heard of before, but I do want to talk about, is the Lavender Scare. Uh, Lavender Scare happens in late uh, 40, early 50. Uh, mainly having to do with federal workers. Federal workers, um, they believe that certain people were susceptible to blackmail by the Russians. They thought if you had a private life, if you had a secret life, the Russians could find out about it and blackmail into doing your bidding. Uh, people they really streamed out were uh, people with gambling debts or alcoholics, but the one that was targeted more than anything else was homosexuals. Uh, that's where you get Lavender from Lavender's Care. The idea of being an out homosexual in this time period did not exist. I'm not saying gay people didn't exist. There were gay people back then. In fact, we're going to talk about one in a little bit. One. A, a case involving gay individuals in a second. But it was not open. It was not out. Um, people were not out with homosexuality in this time period. It was a very, very... Well, when we get into the 50s, very repressed time. And so they start screening federal government employees of being gay or not. And if you're gay, you're let go because the fear is if we found out about it, the Russians could find out about it, and they could blackmail you into doing things for them so they don't tell your friends and family that you're gay. Now what ends up happening is a lot of federal employees, gay federal employees, good workers, people who've really got no issues otherwise, are being let go left and right, and they're not able to tell why they got let out because they're gay. Uh, two big spy cases I do want you to know about in a, in a, for right now. Uh, the first one is the case of Alger Hiss and Whitaker Chambers. Uh, go over one. That is Alger Hiss. He's a good-looking guy, isn't he? Uh, Alger Hiss was the bag man for Roosevelt during uh, Yalta. He was pretty much the guy who held the bag for um, Roosevelt. He was kind of an intelligence guy. He is accused by Whitaker Chambers, next slide over, of being a spy for the communists, being a spy for the Soviets. And the reason why Whitaker Chambers says he knows this is because he says, Hiss and I were lovers, and um, he told me about it because we're, we're, we're gay lovers. 
Uh, Hiss denies ever being gay or anything like that. Uh, Chambers is an admitted bisexual. He's also an admitted former member of the Communist Party. Uh, man, if we were in class, I'd go into the kind of the particulars of this case because it's a weird one. Uh, but just know, this kind of gets everybody's ire up. This is one of the first uh, cases ever televised. Uh, the hearings of Whitaker Chambers and Alger Hiss are televised. They have congressional hearings about it. Uh, Hiss is unflappable during this. He's cool. Uh, he doesn't seem to sweat. He says, I wear these you know, light linen suits. They don't sweat. Meanwhile, Whitaker Chambers, he's, he's you know, kind of overweight, dumpy. He slurs his words. He seems very sweaty. You know, he, he's admitting that he's gay or bisexual. And he's a former communist. Yeesh. You know, that is something that is not seen as uh, very couth in the, in the, um, in the, in the 50s. Uh, the one that really does get people freaked out about is the next case of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. If you see them, there they are. Uh, they seem to be an ordinary, everyday family. Uh, ordinary, everyday couple. They have two sons. Uh, they have, I think they have twin boys, actually. And um, they are accused of being spies. And the thing is, they are. Well, definitely Julius. Julius is a member of the Communist Party. Uh, he's a socialist. Yeah, he's a socialist. I'm a member of the Communist Party. But her brother is working as a janitor in the Manhattan Project. He, uh, his, the brother is sending all these diagrams to Julius. He's coding it, sending it to the Russians. Um, there is a lot of question about whether she knew or whether she didn't know about how much was going on here. What ends up happening with Julius and Ethel Rosenberg is that they are accused of espionage and treason. And if you don't know what's the punishment for treason, that's right, execution. They are indeed executed for this. Um, in fact, this picture was taken about 30 minutes before their execution. Uh, she is actually offered a chance because there is pretty decent evidence that she didn't really know what she was doing. She was just typing up notes that her husband had already put into code. However, she said, you know, this is my husband. I'm not going anywhere other than with him. You know, it's okay if my six-year-old boys are, are orphaned because of this. And they are indeed killed. They are indeed um, executed. They're one of the last people executed for treason in the United States. Now, this scares the mess out of everybody, because these are nuclear secrets. Uh, fun fact, after the Cold War is over and the U.S. and the Russians compared notes, uh, the stuff that the Rosenbergs were able to send over to the Russians was not actually all that valuable. Uh, the Russians had much better spies than uh, the stuff the Rosenbergs were able to get over. It was believed that communists were everywhere. You know, we have got admitted communists now. You know, we need to get rid of the homosexuals or, or root them out. You know, even ordinary-looking families, you know, ordinary-looking couples could be harboring uh, communist spies. And there's a lot of interesting things that happen in this time period. In particular, there is a lot of worry about what's going on in Hollywood, what's going on in the country in general. Uh, Hollywood, I skipped ahead a little bit. There's a great fear of communism. Uh, there, a lot of conformity becomes idealized uh, once we get into the 50s. We'll talk about that more when we get into the 50s. You know, don't rock the boat. Don't stand out. Uh, there's so much fear of communism. Uh, so much fear of being afraid of being um, shown of what it, you know, what is it to be communist. Uh, schools do things like outlaw Robin Hood. The story of Robin Hood is outlawed for a while in the 50s. 
because it's viewed as being too communist. Why might it be viewed as being communist? Well, Robin Hood steals from the rich to give to the poor. That's redistribution of wealth, comrade. Uh, Robin Hood's a communist. He's not really a communist, but they outlawed it. Um, educators. Educators were charged with uh, teaching about the evils of communism. Uh, if you were to talk about communism, you have to talk that it's evil. For instance, I, would, I as a professor, would be asked to, well, forced to sign a, what's called a loyalty oath. Basically, where I affirm that the United States is good. Uh, in my classes, I have to tell you all the time that the U.S. is the best country ever. If I were to ever talk about communism, I'd have to say how evil it is. Uh, there is a great drive of towards churches in this time period. A huge drive towards churches. Uh, being a member of a church, regularly attending church, is seen as a way to demonstrate that you are a good American. Not necessarily a good Christian, but a good American. Because communism is not simpatico with Christianity and religion. Remember, theoretically speaking, communism is atheist. So the U.S. actually has its highest church attendance numbers in the 1950s. Because of this push, go to church, you show you're a good American. There's also a huge fear of nuclear war. It becomes seen as inevitable. And then there's also fear of messages coming out from Hollywood. Uh, remember, Hollywood is viewed as a little bit more leftist. Uh, HUAC, the House Un-American Activities Committee, comes together. They start investigating, you know, are there Russian spies all throughout America? There is fear of Hollywood because it is indeed leftist. It does tend to go a little bit left of the uh, political spectrum. Uh, they start blacklisting people. You know, this is where you have your Hollywood 10. They are blacklisted. Uh, producers and stuff like this. One name you do need to know in, in this is the president of the Screen Actors Guild of this time period. He names names. He does not keep silent when he takes a stand. He tells pretty much anybody who know, he knows who is somewhat leftist. Uh, the, ma the name of this guy is Ronald Reagan. Know that name. He's become very important later on in this class. Now, Hollywood also starts trying to make movies, saying, no, 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 we're not, we, we hate communism too. I, I'll show you a couple movie posters. I love this one. I married a communist. Look at that. Her beauty served a mob of terror, whose one mission is to destroy. Oh, the scary, sexy communist. Ooh, terrifying. Uh, this next one I like even better. Uh, the most talked about drama of our time, The Red Menace. So shocking. It was filmed behind locked studio doors. Fun fact. They always lock the studio doors. You don't want people just, like, coming in during a shot. Uh, the other big fear that starts coming up, it, it kind of gets amplified in Joseph McCarthy. If you go over one more slide, you'll see Joseph McCarthy. He is a nobody senator from Wisconsin. Uh, he had been a tailgunning in World War II. He was a bit younger in this time period. Actually, he's in his early 40s. He's known as a bit of a mudslinger. You know, he's kind of a scrapper. He's Republican. He's, like, saying, basically, the Democrats are too soft on communism. They're the reason we lost... Um, they're, they're the reason that we lost China. And he kind of drops a, a live bomb early on at a meeting of the women of the Republican Party's auxiliary luncheon uh, in, in West Virginia. He's not even a senator there. He pretty much says early on, I have a list of... 50 card-carrying members of the Communist Party in the State Department. Now, that's a live bomb. That would be like saying, I know for a fact that there are two members of ISIS in this class. It's like, whoa, 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 Tully, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? Well, that's what McCarthy does. And the thing is, he won't let anybody see the list. He just claims that, you know, the entirety of Washington is corrupt. 
drain the swamp, if you will, but drain the swamp of communist, not corruption. And every time uh, McCarthy is asked about it, the number of names on the list keeps growing. First it's like a hundred names, then it's like a couple thousand names. And so because he's a senator, he starts doing Senate hearings. He starts like kind of grilling people, uh, kind of witch trials almost. Find out who is communist, who isn't communist. Likewise, he expands to talk about the army. He says that they're, uh, it's, you know, it's bad enough that they're communists in the State Department, they're uh, communists within the army. This doesn't work out very well for him. For instance, he starts kind of uh, angling toward Dwight Eisenhower, who's not president yet, but still very popular. Uh, pretty much, Eisenhower responds, I'm not getting into a pissing contest with a jackass. He's like, nope, not going to do it. If you go one more slide, you'll see uh, McCarthy talking about members of the Communist Party in the, in the country. I love the reaction of the guy on the left. He's like, good Lord, he's just making stuff up again. Uh, the McCarthy, the Army McCarthy hearings were indeed one of the first things ever on television. Um, they are one of the first things on television. You know, McCarthy is on TV quite a bit. Uh, eventually he goes a little bit too far. People start talking out against him. He has a quick fall from grace. He is eventually censured by the Senate. Um... That about does it for McCarthy. He later on dies of complications from alcoholism. Like I said, he's not a he's not a very nice person by any by any stretch. Uh, still, it makes it so the U.S. has to win the Cold War. You, you have to contain communism. Now, something I don't have a slide about, but I do need to mention because it is important in this time period, uh, is the Korean War that happens from about fifty to fifty two. I don't have the time, sadly, to go deep into it. Uh, we just don't have the time in the class and with the quarantine. I'm having to cut stuff left and right. Uh, the U.S. does get involved, even though even Keenan's like, this is not going to directly involve the U.S. Uh, still, it's looking that Korea is going to uh, fall to communism. Uh, there is North Korea and South Korea. North Korea is led by Kim Il-sung. Kim Il-sung is kind of a freedom fighter, somebody who fought against the Japanese during World War II. Uh, the U.S.'s guy in South Korea, he is not in Korea during World War II. He's out of Korea. He's a lot older. He's not exactly a folk hero. Uh, the war goes on for a while. We actually got pretty close to using nuclear weapons there because China gets involved. Uh, it is theoretically a U.N. police action led by the United, Nation, uh, led by the United States for the United Nations. Uh, we send in troops, you know... MacArthur wants to use nuclear bombs. Truman says no. MacArthur calls Truman a jackass. Truman lets MacArthur go. Uh, pretty much we drive the North Koreans all the way up to the border with China, but we don't go into the border with China because to go to the border with China would be an act of war. Meanwhile, China strikes back against the U.S. The Chinese Communist troops come in. Um, Russia doesn't get too, too involved, but it is kind of a proxy war between Communist China and the U.S., uh, this goes on for a while until 52, right at the end of 52. The thing I want you to know about Korea, it does not end theoretically. All we have in Korea is a stalemate. Theoretically, the Korean War is not at peace. Uh, pretty much Korea gets divided at the 38th parallel. It stays in place to this day. Uh, Kim Il-sung is a grandfather of Kim Jong-un, who is the current leader. Uh, Kim Jong-il is Kim Jong-sun's um, son, and Kim Jong-un's father. Pretty much the same family has led North Korea since then. And it's it, it's the first time the U.S. does not win this war. You know, there's a lot of talk about how do you fight a war like this? I mean, because the U.S., if we went in, 
with all of our might. If we if we use total war, which is something pretty much everybody's used throughout all history, the idea that if you have a weapon that your enemy doesn't have, use it. Use anything to your advantage. Uh, that is not going to be the status quo now that you have nuclear weapons. And that is where we're going to end it. We're going to end it around 1952. I know we focus mainly on 49. But as we get into the 50s, just know that things are kind of tense. The Cold War is not going to be as easy as we thought it was going to be. And yet the 1950s are going to be viewed as a very positive time for the country and pretty big in nostalgia. So with that, I hope you all have a good one. This is Dr. Tully signing off on a fairly long one, but hopefully you all found it interesting. Have a good one. Bye-bye.